King the master carver made a bell of precious wood. When it was finished, all who saw it were astounded. They say it must be the work of spirits. The prince of Lu said to the master carver, What is your secret? King replied, I'm only a workman. I have no secret. This, there is only this. When I began to think about the work you commanded, I guarded my spirit, did not expand it on trifles that were not to the point. I fasted in order to set my heart to rest. After three days of fasting, I had forgotten gain and success. After five days, I had forgotten praise or criticism. After seven days, I had forgotten my body with all its limbs. By this time, all thought of your highness and of the court had faded away. All that might distract me from the work had vanished. I was collected in the single thought of the bell stand. Then I went to the forest to see the trees in their own natural state. When the right tree appeared before my eyes, the bell stand also appeared in it, clearly beyond doubt. All I had to do was to put forth my hand and begin. If I had not met this particular tree, there would have been no bell stand at all. What happened? My own collected thought encountered the hidden potential in the wood. From this life encounter came the work which you ascribe to the spirits. Well, good morning to you. I have to say I'm feeling both nervous and excited to be standing here before you this morning. We know from physiologists that the physical sensations of nerves and excitement are exactly the same. It all depends on how you think about it. And I'm thinking both kinds of thoughts right now. As Michael said, I will be with you as an intern minister for the next 18 months, half time. And we will be learning from each other. You will be teaching me. Michael will be teaching me, the staff, the children will be teaching me about what it means to be a Unitarian Universalist minister. And I'm very excited for that opportunity. And I bring with me a collection of life experience and uh, learnings that I hope I will have opportunities to share with you as well. We will be inspired together like the woodcarver to both look within, look deeply within, so that we can truly see each other and the world as, as we look out. We thought that this morning to introduce me to you and to share this time, uh, this pulpit time together, we would look at the question that Unitarian Universalist ministers are considering now, the question, whose are we? It's a great question. And 
Michael focused the question in three ways, three questions that we are posing to ourselves this morning to share ourselves with you. And I invite you to begin thinking about these questions as well, and I hope we'll have many more opportunities to speak about them. The first question is, to whom are we beholden? To whom are we beholden? And the second question, to whom are we accountable? To whom are we accountable? And then the third question that follows is, and how am I called to serve? How am I to serve? As you use, we enjoy opportunities to share our spiritual journeys. And those often begin in looking and reflecting back on that to which we feel beholden in our lives. We also speak about that which we have shed behind. And sometimes, as in my case, those things get kind of mixed up together because that's how life is. It mixes what we're beholden for and what we're really glad we left behind. I grew up in uh, the South, in North Carolina, Winston-Salem. Lived there my entire well, most of my childhood. And I had religious experience there. This is one of the things I'm beholden to, but it's actually very complicated in my life. I'm beholden to being in religious community for the first 17 years of my life. Um, I went to an urban Presbyterian church. I also attended a little country Methodist church where my dad had grown up, where I was known as Jackie's little girl to all the older parishioners there. Um, Winston-Salem is a town of deep Moravian heritage, and I actually have some Moravian heritage of my own. So I lived in a community of, uh, of religion. And I also had the good fortune to take yoga from an early age at the YMCA, which at that point in my life had nothing to do with religion. But boy, am I glad now that it's been a part of my life for many, many, many years. So I do hope to join you at the Kirtan this coming Saturday. It should be a lot of fun. What I learned in religious community, even as I left behind dogma and creed that made me feel not good about myself, and that's a whole other story, but I was beholden to having grown up in a community of faith that focused on love in a multi-generational community. And I was blessed to have grown up in a setting where worship and celebration were a part of the rhythms of my life. And I gained so much from having come to know that there is such a thing as scripture, teachings, wisdom teachings, stories, poetry that can enliven our soul. And I also learned there the posture of prayer that humility, that honors something greater than ourselves, even though for many years of my life it was a to whom it may concern. I didn't know what that was about. But it was a place in me that was yearning and that continues to yearn. And so I'm beholden to that religious heritage. And I love that about our communities, that we give that to ourselves and to our children. I'm also beholden 
to a particular person. We all have people who have breathed life into us. You'll hear me speak at times about my grandmother, my father's mother, my nan, who in many ways was a spiritual guide to me from a very early age. She embodied love in a way that I hold very dear to my heart. So I have stories of beholdenness, but I always come back to those two, religious community and embodied love in my grandmother that, that I carry. <laughs> to whom am I accountable? I think this is something that we learn together. We learn in a community of practice about our accountabilities. I've learned much more about that in my adult life than I have ever imagined. We learn in our spiritual practices to be open to seeing, like the woodcarver, to what it is we are accountable. And we learn through educating ourselves to be mindful of this world that we are connected in. You know, our UU principles start on the one hand with the inherent worth and dignity of every person, and then the seventh principle, the interrelatedness of the web of life of which we are all a part, the interdependence. And to try to live in that place that holds those together in tension, that's the challenge of accountability for me. If, if I sum it up, I would say I, I'm accountable to live an examined life. I'm accountable to you to live an examined life in which I am mindful of my place in this world. And I'm accountable to all those I come in contact with, knowing that there are many others I will never meet. And as a person of privilege, this is an extremely difficult accountability to live out. But we struggle together to do that, and we celebrate our willingness to do that. I also think as a, as a growing minister, I'm accountable to you to bring you a message of hope that through love and justice-seeking, we can create a world that is more fair for all. And that is a part, of I, a part of my accountability that I bring to this congregation. And so how am I called to serve? This is a good place for me to answer the question of what's your doctorate in and what are you doing here and what's that all about? I have had an over 25-year successful career as a psychologist I'm what they call a second career minister. Um, and it was, it was, I still practice some, although I try to bring my practice in line with my ministry. Uh, I loved being a psychologist, and yet I was restless. I became restless as a psychologist. And I went through a period in my life back in the early 90s when there was great chaos, I would say, a lot of grief and loss and change, and my sense of grounding in the world was really turned upside down. And this is what I discovered. After my psychotherapy was finished, after I no longer needed antidepressants, after the uh, support groups were over, after I was feeling on my game again, I was still growing and changing in my congregation. I was still in a process of transformation in my spiritual community. And in that process, I 
I discovered that restlessness had a name. I wanted to be a part of transformation. I wanted to be a part of what transforms us and therefore transforms the world in which we live. And so that's how I felt that calling to serve differently, and that began the path into ministry for me. Congregations transform lives. I know that. I believe that. And that's what we will be doing here together as we, as we learn about each other and we do the work of this congregation. Thank you. Whose am I? I've talked a lot about my own call to the ministry here before. My, my own understanding and coming to an understanding that I am called as a minister to help create community in which people can be whole, in which people can bring exactly who they are and be loved for it. I believe it is in those sorts of communities that transformation happens. I've talked a lot from this pulpit about my call to heal the world and my call to create religious community that sees itself connected to the world and responsible for healing the brokenness in this world. But there are two things that I haven't talked about so much from this pulpit that are related to whose I am and what I feel called to do. And that is, first, my call to teaching, and second, my passion for our Unitarian Universalist faith. I, like everyone else, owes a lot to those people who have taken the time and the care to teach me, those who have taken the time and the care to get to know me, who I am and where I'm going, and to see something in me that needs to be nurtured and developed. I think often of my graduate school advisor when I was a cell biologist way back when, who took the time in her lab to mentor each of her students individually. Many of the advisors there just said, okay, go and do your work, do your, do your research, check in with me about how the research is going. I might you know, get you skills that you need to do your research, but you know, just do it, go. My advisor wasn't like that. She took the time to get to know each one of us. And she saw in me calls to do more than just the experiments uh, on, the, on the lab bench. And so she gave each of her students special assignments not that, were, that were outside of the research that we did. Each one of her students got some special assignments as the years went on. Most of her students got special research assignments, assignments that would help get them published as a researcher and help get them established in the scientific field. But I didn't get the special research assignments. I got the special teaching assignments. I got to mentor the undergraduate students who were coming into our lab and asking to learn how to be a scientist. And I got the special writing assignments, the ones that um, when our lab was, was asked to explain the world that, that we researched to a wider audience. Those are the special assignments she gave me. And she gave me those special assignments because she saw in me a call to teach, a call to help people see new things, to discover new truths, to figure things out, 
to make connections. That's something that I felt from early on, from even in my high school days when I was a teaching assistant in biology classes in the high school that I went to. My colleague and friend, the Reverend Orlando Brunola, is a mentor and a teacher as well. And she's also, in addition to being a minister, an artist. And she has artists that she mentors. And this, um, this fall, she and one of the artists that she mentors put on a joint show together of their art. And in the, uh, the, the explanation of their show, Orlando wrote this of her call to mentorship. She wrote, Mentorship is a kind of fierce love unlike any other. It is not a friendship or a close teacher-student relationship. It requires the mentor to be both cajoler and trickster, extoller and critic, giver and receiver. If the mentorship succeeds, the mentor is surpassed. That is the moment a good mentor yearns for. Orlando was one of many who helped me understand that my call to teaching was really a call to mentorship in the context of Unitarian Universalism. You see, I'm really passionate about Unitarian Universalism. I'm really passionate about what this faith holds for the world, the promise that it holds for the world. I believe that this is a religious movement that can transform our world for the better. This is a religious movement that rejects arbitrary divisions of humanity, a faith that believes in the ultimate equality of all people. If we are living from our principles, if we are practicing our faith, Unitarian Universalists are practicing the art of radical hospitality. We are boldly proclaiming and acting from that proclamation that there is room for all people at our table. Most of our world doesn't operate like that. Most of our world shuts people out. It doesn't proclaim that there is room for anyone who comes at the table. And so I think that a religious movement that proclaims and and acts from a core of radical hospitality can transform our world. But I believe that fulfilling all of that promise requires both lay people and religious professionals to be dedicated to that promise. Now, helping lay people be dedicated to those principles and that promise is part of my ministry with this congregation. Part of my ministry is helping you find your calling in this world, to helping you find your purpose in this world, to helping you answer the question, whose are you? To whom or what are you beholden? To whom or what are you accountable? To whom or what do you answer? What keeps you going? What goads you onwards towards what you consider your higher purpose? What helps you figure out what that purpose is in the first place? I believe that being part of a Unitarian Universalist religious community can help you have the answers to that questions. It takes the fierce love of mentorship to figure out the answers to those questions for all of us. Now, fulfilling the promise of our faith is your responsibility 
as lay people in it, but it's also my responsibility as a minister and the responsibility of all of our religious professionals. And this is where I connect my call to teaching and mentorship with my passion for this religious community. You see, you might not know this, but in the ministry, in the Unitarian Universalist ministry, like in many of our congregations, there is a culture of scarcity, a culture that says there is not enough. There's not enough time, there's not enough money, there are not enough congregations to serve, not enough jobs, not enough. We don't have enough time to engage with people outside the communities that we are called to serve. We don't have enough, enough. We don't have enough. There's a culture of scarcity in our ministry, just like there's a culture of scarcity in many of our congregations. And my goal, as it should be all of our goals, is to replace that culture with a culture of abundance. A culture of abundance is the very culture that helps us live out that value that there is room for all of us at the table of our faith. There is room for people who think like us, and there is room for people who think differently from us at the table. And there is enough spiritual sustenance here in this community to feed the hunger of everyone who comes in. There's not a limit to that. There's not a scarcity to it. There is enough. And there is enough room and enough time and enough jobs and enough place in our movement, enough promise for the future that we can welcome new ministers into our movement as well. And that we can all, lay people and professionals alike, help those ministers be the best that they can possibly be. For me, teaching and mentoring both lay people and new religious professionals helps me move our faith movement toward a culture of abundance. It helps me move this religion that I care so passionately for towards fulfilling its promise in our world. It does so in a different way than the, the work that I do with the congregation, but an equally fulfilling way. It's not an accident that in the three and a half years that I've been here, I've already developed a reputation in our district for the person that people in seminary can actually ask hard questions to. Because a lot of my colleagues don't see that there's time to answer those hard questions, and I can't help but make time to do it because it's what I'm called to do. Those folks who are developing into ministers are people to whom I am beholden, people to whom I am accountable. And they are folks who need to learn that this business of becoming and being a minister is not easy stuff, but it's worth every minute. So whose am I? I am called both within me and from those people in my life. I am called by this congregation. I am called by our movement. And I am called by my colleagues, past, present, and future, to develop a culture of abundance, to develop the promise of radical hospitality, to develop the promise of a faith 
that can transform our world through the simple message that everyone is welcome at our table. Whose are you?